It is such a joy and a blessing to be here with you this morning and worshiping with you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through to verse 41. Again, the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, and we'll be covering the events of Pentecost. But before we jump into our text, I did want to address a few things about the book of Acts and the events of Pentecost in particular. Um, First of all, we need to recognize that the book of Acts is primarily a narrative that is describing events that took place in history. Luke makes it clear in the introduction to his gospel that his goal is to provide an accurate, trustworthy account of these events as they occurred. That said, it is not primarily a prescription for how we should or shouldn't do things. While there are principles that can be derived from the example of the apostles, we need to understand that Luke is first and foremost recounting these events for us, not instructing us in the normative way of doing things. So in other words, as you've heard Pastor Tim mention before, the book of Acts is narrative, not normative. What Luke writes is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. A good example of this principle is the book of Judges. If you you recall, in the book of Judges, Gideon was tasked with putting an army together to face the Midianites. And how did Gideon choose his men? Well, following Yahweh's instructions, Gideon had the men drink from the water. And those who knelt down to drink were sent home, whereas those who scooped the water with their hands and brought it to their mouths, they were chosen to participate in this army. Now, do you think the point of this text was to instruct us and how to train and recruit soldiers for the military? No. Not at all. But but can you imagine, though, how the U.S. military would respond, or any nation's military for that matter, if we offered this test, what we'll call Gideon's water test, as the biblical recruiting method? Well, you'd be laughed out of a room, and rightfully so. But we do this kind of thing with the Bible, don't we? We make one-to-one applications that miss the point of the text. Take the Daniel fast, for instance. When Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food, do you really think the point of that story was to give Christians in 21st century America dietary advice? I guess you could say that is an application that could be made, but is that the right application? Is that the primary point of the text? When we read stories like this, stories like Daniel or Gideon, rather than making one-to-one applications, right? Gideon had the men drink from the water to determine who should stay and who should go. So we too should drink, have men drink from the water to determine who should stay and who should go. Or in Daniel's case, Daniel ate certain foods for a set amount of time. So we too should eat certain foods for a set amount of time. Instead of making one-to-one applications like this, we need to see the primary point of the biblical text. The primary point of both Daniel and Gideon's story is to relay to us events that happened. Now, are there some things that we can learn from these stories? Well, of course. Is there an application to be made from these recorded events? Absolutely. In Gideon's case, we see that it is God who determines the outcome of the battle. We see that the events of history are not determined by us, but by the sovereign providence 
of God. And in Daniel's case, we see that God blesses those who follow him in obedience and faith. When we read biblical narratives, we need to keep in mind that first and foremost, they are narrative, not normative. They are describing events that took place, not prescribing how we necessarily ought to do things. And in the same way, when we read the book of Acts, we need to remember that Luke is telling us what has happened. He is narrating these events for us, not instructing us, certainly not in a one-to-one sense, in the normative practice or experience of the church. Which brings me to my next point. The reason I wanted to address this uh, on the front end is because the events of Pentecost and the function of the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood and hypersensationalized throughout history. There are many in our day who misunderstand the person of the Holy Spirit. So they engage in these strange practices, hoping to manipulate the third person of the Trinity into doing things that are not in accord with what's been revealed in Scripture. Or we see some on the complete opposite end of the spectrum who think, ooh, that's just for those crazy charismatics over there. And they end up just ignoring the Holy Spirit altogether. And I think if we're being honest, most of us here in this room this morning would fall into that second category. But we need to recognize that both of these approaches are equally unbiblical. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit is God. He is as much God as the Father and the Son. So we cannot manipulate him into doing our bidding. And we certainly are not allowed to simply ignore him. So as we come to our text this morning, we need to understand that the events Luke records for us, that they're true, that they're historical, but also that they are not normative events that we should expect in the life of the church at every point in history. Not only that, but we need to suspend the unbiblical presuppositions we may have of the Holy Spirit so that we are not in danger of ascribing false things to the third person of the Trinity. We need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the teachings of Scripture so that we may worship God, the triune God, in spirit and truth. So with that, let us turn to our text in Acts 2. Here is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak uh, in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What 
does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that once he accomplished the salvation of his people through his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, you seated him at your right hand. And we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit 
who quickens the hearts of your people so that we may be enabled to know your Son as Lord and Savior. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see what you would have for us in your word. And if there are those among us who do not know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin a work in their hearts so that they may know and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in the precious and holy name of your Son. Amen. As we jump into the text this morning, we see in verse 1 that they were all together in one place when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, who were the they? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, we find out who they were. They were a company of about 120 people, including the apostles and the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in chapter 1, we are also told why they were there. Before Jesus had ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. We read this at the end of Luke's gospel, and Luke reminds us of this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. So it wasn't random that they were all together. And it wasn't random that they were all together in Jerusalem. Rather, they were awaiting the fulfillment of Christ's promise to send the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 2 through 4, we are told that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and that it filled the entire house, and that divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, as a reminder, this is narrative, not normative. We see that this is how the Spirit initially came down upon his people at this particular point in history. <clears throat> now, that said, I think we should still ask the question, should we expect the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in that same way today? When the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells the hearts of God's people, should we expect to hear a sound like a mighty rushing wind and see flaming tongues of fire? Well, to be completely transparent, I do not believe so. I believe that this was a unique time in history that demanded a unique display of the Holy Spirit's power. I would argue further that in the same way, the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Samson was unique and that we should not expect the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to look the same for us today. I would argue that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit upon that first group of believers was unique to the apostolic age, and that we should not expect it to look the same for us today. But despite that, however, I do think that there is an application to be made uh, from the Holy Spirit's work both at Pentecost as well as in the life of Samson. Namely, that when the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to work in a person's life, it will be evident to all those around them. We should expect to see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in causing sinners to be born again, though it may not necessarily look the same way it did during the times of Samson or the apostles. We then see in verses 5 through 13 that a multitude of devout Jewish men from every nation under heaven came to see what all the ruckus was about. And that was the Somerville translation for those of you who are used to the preaching of our senior pastor. But we read that they came to see what all the ruckus was about and they were bewildered. They were bewildered because they were hearing in their own language the mighty works of God. In our day, there's a lot of confusion about 
the sign gift of tongues. A lot of what you'll hear today that's referred to as tongues is nothing more than mindless babbling and a repeating of syllables. But at Pentecost, these tongues were not a mindless repetition of syllables. Rather, this was intelligible speech in foreign languages. And not only that, but it wasn't just that the apostles and followers of Jesus were speaking different languages, but they were speaking the mighty works of God. So again, this was intelligible speech in foreign languages. And the content of that speech was specifically about what God has done in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So again, understanding the narrative, we see an important principle about the Holy Spirit's work. We see that when the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit are manifest, they are specifically manifest to point to the works of God in the second person of the Trinity. Then in verse 14, Peter steps up to address those who were observing these events. He makes it clear that they weren't witnessing public intoxication, but the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Again, here we see an important connection between the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. We see that when the Holy Spirit came upon these apostles, he did not, in a manner of speaking, give them a new revelation about things previously unknown. Rather, he pointed them back to the Word of God as contained in his written Scriptures. What they were experiencing and what those Jewish men were witnessing was interpreted through the lens of God's word. And I appreciate what Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this passage. He says this, quote, Christ's scholars never learn above their Bibles. And the spirit is given not to do away with the scriptures, but to enable us to understand, approve, and obey them. Here we see another important principle about the Holy Spirit's work. At Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit began to powerfully manifest himself in the life of these apostles, he specifically pointed them to the written word of God and opened their eyes to see how Jesus had fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Then in verses 22 through 31, we get to the heart of Peter's message. We see that under the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter proclaims to them the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Again, we see another important truth about the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit isn't so much concerned with drawing attention to himself. Rather, he points the spotlight on the person and work of Christ. Sadly, what you see in much of these hyper-charismatic circles is unintelligible tongues, strange prophecies that are disconnected from Scripture at best or contrary to Scripture at worst, and a focus on these sign gifts themselves or on the individual through whom these gifts are manifest. But at Pentecost, was that the emphasis of the Holy Spirit? Not at all. Instead, you see the Holy Spirit drawing attention to Christ, drawing attention to the one who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see that the Holy Spirit caused these apostles to make much of Christ, to exalt and glorify him above all things, and to proclaim his gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. 
We then see in verse 25, Peter again point to the Old Testament scriptures by reminding them of David's words in Psalm 16. We know that in an immediate sense, these words were true of David. But in an ultimate sense, they weren't. David eventually did die. And his body did see corruption. So Peter rightly interprets David's words as pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. Then Peter says in verse 33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter explains to these Jews that the events they were now witnessing were the sign that Christ has been exalted and enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The manifest presence of the Holy Spirit upon his people was the definitive proof that Christ has entered into glory, that he is now glorified with that same glory he shared with the Father before the world began, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Peter then quotes Psalm 110:1, which is the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Again, pointing out that David did not ascend to Yahweh's right hand, but he was speaking prophetically of the Messiah. And if you recall, back in Luke's gospel, Jesus posed this question to the Pharisees in Luke 20, 41 through 44. There Jesus quotes this psalm, which reads, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees, how can David call his offspring his Lord? Well, we know that the answer is because David's offspring would be the Messiah that he would be the king of glory from Psalm 24, that he would be Yahweh himself. And Peter declares that it is Christ, the man crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. He is the one who has been exalted to the Father's right hand, and he is having all his enemies placed under his feet. And once Peter concludes his message, we read in verse 37 that the people were cut to the heart. So much so that their immediate response was, what shall we do? Now, when was the last time you witnessed a response like that? When was the last time you felt so convicted by the gospel that your only response was, tell me what I must do next? We see here in Acts that this gospel message so impacted these hearers that they demanded instruction in how to properly respond. And Peter's instructions were simple. Repent and be baptized. And in these instructions, we see first the importance of repentance. The proper response to the proclamation of the gospel is always to turn towards God in faith. But we cannot turn towards God unless we turn from our sin. We must repent of our sin, crucifying our old self, along with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Only through being united with him in a death like his will we be united with him in a resurrection like his. Only by turning from our sin will we be able to turn towards God in faith. We then see the centrality of baptism as the public proclamation of your identity with Christ. Not only will believers turn from their sin and turn towards Christ, but they will publicly display 
their allegiance to and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. Peter then tells them in verse 39 that the promise of salvation was not for some elite group of believers, but it was for all those whom the Lord calls to himself. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female. The promise of salvation was for all those who would turn from their sin in repentance and faith towards God. And we read that in a single day there were added about 3,000 souls who received the gospel and were baptized. So in this text, we are given the narrative of events. And in particular, we see the works of the Holy Spirit as he initially came down at Pentecost. But what does this text tell us, both in a narrative sense as well as in a normative sense, about the work of the Holy Spirit? We see that in this narrative, in the book of Acts, that Luke records for us, we see the normative works of the Holy Spirit. And we see how he still works in the life of his people today. First, let's take a look at what the Holy Spirit did. Specifically, what was unique to that initial outpouring at Pentecost? As I've already mentioned, I believe that the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was unique to the apostolic age. But why? What was unique about that time that demanded a unique display of power by the Holy Spirit? The first thing we see is that the Holy Spirit was fulfilling the promise of Christ. Throughout both Luke and John's Gospels, we see Christ promise to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And again, just prior to his ascension, Jesus promises his disciples that he will send the Holy Spirit. So this manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power was to show these disciples that Jesus has kept his promise. Now, you need to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit was active during the Old Testament. We read of God's power being on display in the life of Moses, the judges, David, and the prophets. So being good Jews who would have been familiar with Old Testament history, the Holy Spirit powerfully manifested himself at Pentecost in such a way that these disciples could differentiate between a display of power in the general sense and the specific fulfillment of Christ's promise. We need to also understand that it wasn't just the depth of power on display, but it was the scope of power on display. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit come upon one particular individual at a time. But here at Pentecost, we see the Spirit come down upon all of God's people. As Peter points out, Joel prophesied of this very thing, that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh not just one individual at a time, but sons and daughters, young and old, male and female. So what was unique about this demonstration of power by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was demonstrating in dramatic fashion that he was fulfilling Christ's promise to his disciples. This powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit to those early Christians was so that they could say with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ kept his promise. The second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit was validating the enthronement of Christ. How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to atone for our sins? Through 
the Father's stamp of approval in his resurrection. By raising Jesus from the dead, the Father was demonstrating his approval of Jesus' high priestly work in offering the sacrifice of himself for the sins of his people. And how do we know that Jesus has ascended to the Ancient of Days and that he has been given dominion and authority and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him? How do we know that that's taken place? Through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those believers so that they could take the gospel message to every tribe and tongue and people. We see that through the sign gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit was demonstrating that Jesus has been given the nations as his inheritance. In Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, we read that Yahweh has set his king on Zion, which is a reference to the holy city. And in this enthronement of his king, Yahweh says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So stick with me here for a second. If Christ, the Messiah, has been enthroned in the heavens, and he really has been given the nations of the earth as his possession, what do you think that would look like here in the earthly realm? What evidence would we see of this reality? Well, it would look like the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, going forth to every tongue and people. It would look like people hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. It would look like Yahweh's rule flowing forth from Zion so that 2,000 years after these events, the people of Clay, Alabama would be proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own language. The unleashing of the gospel to the nations is the definitive proof that Jesus Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. So now that we've seen what the Holy Spirit uniquely did at Pentecost, we will now look to what the Holy Spirit still does today. We've seen the promise to the disciples fulfilled, and we've seen the kingship of Christ validated. And even though these things were fulfilled during the time of the apostles, uh, there is a sense in which the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit is further evidence of these truths. But what is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit today? We see that during these unique events at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was performing his normative functions. But what are those normative functions? The first normative work of the Holy Spirit is that of regeneration. And that term, regeneration, simply refers to the new birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus, Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We know that the ultimate distinction between the believer and the unbeliever is not between one who goes to church on Sunday mornings and one who doesn't, but between one who is dead in trespasses and sins and one who has been born again, made alive together with Christ. Now, regeneration or the new birth is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, which reads, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, 
our Savior. There we see that according to his own mercy, God saved us in Christ. And how did he apply that salvation to us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we are brought from death to life. Now, regeneration is an inward spiritual reality. And we are not given some sort of special regeneration goggles through which we can see who's really dead in their trespasses and sins and who is spiritually alive. But simply because this is primarily a spiritual reality does not mean there, there are not real, tangible, evident fruits. We know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit produces fruit. We also know that we will know a tree by its fruits, and we are called to examine those fruits. But what are the fruits of regeneration? What evidence is given for this spiritual change? The first thing we will see is the conviction of sin. As the Spirit begins to work in a person's life, he brings about the conviction of sin. Jesus explains this in John chapter 16, which we read for our scripture reading earlier. And in that passage, as Jesus is enjoying fellowship with his disciples just prior to his crucifixion, he tells them that the helper is coming. And he says in verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus explains to his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming. And what is he coming to do? To cause people to speak in tongues by babbling incoherently? No, he is coming to bring about the conviction of sin. And as the Spirit brings about conviction of sin, he causes sinners to turn from their sin. But he not only causes them to turn from their sin, he causes them to turn towards Christ in faith. And this process of turning from sin and turning towards Christ is simply called repentance. And it is key to understand the necessity of both parts of this process. Many people feel remorse over the choices they've made. Many people feel bad about the things they have done. Many people turn their back on certain sins, never again to repeat them. But we must understand that even with remorse, even with abandoning certain sins and behaviors, unless one turns towards Christ in faith, true repentance has not taken place. And if true repentance has not taken place, then we do not have the fruits of regeneration. Paul explains this to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. There he says that, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There we see that the Holy Spirit turns us towards God, that he brings us from our deadness and sin to newness of life so that we may cry, Abba, Father. And he testifies to us that the salvation accomplished by Christ has been applied to us and that we have been adopted as sons of God. So these are the fruits of regeneration. And I'm sure we could really break that down a, a number of different ways. But however we choose to break it down, we see that re regeneration 
always involves the Holy Spirit bringing about the conviction of sin, causing sinners to turn from their sin, but he not only turns them from their sin, he turns them towards Christ. And in Luke's narrative, we see that this is true. As Peter proclaimed the gospel message, we read that the Holy Spirit brought about the conviction of sin among those hearers. In verse 37, we read that they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit brought about a conviction of sin so strong that they needed to respond. They needed to know what must we do to have our sin dealt with. But not only that, verse 41 tells us that those who received Peter's words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Holy Spirit convicted them of sin and he turned them towards Christ so that they responded in repentance and faith and they received the promise of salvation. And that process of regeneration is ongoing today. The only way sinners are saved is by the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of regeneration. By the Holy Spirit bringing about the conviction of sin, causing sinners to abandon their sin and turning them towards Christ in faith. The second normative work of the Holy Spirit is in the illumination of God's word. Again, in John 16, verse 13, Jesus tells the disciples, that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. So again, Jesus explains to his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming. And what is he coming to do? Cause them to prophesy who's going to win the next presidential election? No, he is coming to guide them into all truth. Paul reiterates this point in 1 Corinthians 2.12. There he tells the church at Corinth that they have received the Spirit who is from God, so that they might understand the things freely given them by God. The Holy Spirit is working to guide believers in truth, truth that is given to us freely in his written word, and to open our hearts and our minds so that we may understand that truth. The Reformation Study Bible has this to say about the Holy Spirit's work of illumination. They say this, quote, Though the scriptures themselves are a light for us, there is need for additional illumination so that we may clearly perceive the light. The same spirit who inspired the scriptures works to illuminate the scriptures for our benefit. He sheds more light on the original light. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us to hear, receive, and properly understand the message of God's word, end quote. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the words of Scripture would be as a treasure chest that is locked with no way to access its contents. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the richness of God's Word would be beyond our reach. But because of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, Peter could understand the Old Testament Scriptures and rightly interpret them. And he could proclaim to sinners in his day the mysteries of God revealed in his son, Jesus. And likewise, because of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of illumination, we too can rightly understand God's word and proclaim the mysteries of God in Christ as revealed in the scriptures. The final normative work of the Holy Spirit is that of glorifying Jesus Christ. 
Again, in John 16, verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, Jesus explains to his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming. And what is he coming to do? To cause them to manifest miraculous sign gifts? No, he is coming to glorify Christ. And we see that in Peter's sermon. Because of the Spirit's work in glorifying Christ, we see Peter, under the inspiration and manifest power of the Holy Spirit, proclaim the good news of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And because of the Spirit's ongoing work of glorifying Christ, we too proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. So we've seen the text. We've seen what the Holy Spirit uniquely did at Pentecost, and we've seen what he continues to do still this day. But what about speaking in tongues and other miraculous sign gifts? Are those things that can still happen today? Well, as I've already mentioned, I believe that the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit were unique to the apostolic age. And I believe that they've ceased with the passing of the apostles. And hopefully I've been able to communicate to you uh, some of the unique features of that age that demanded this unique display of power by the Holy Spirit. However, that said, I do not believe in an absolute sense that these gifts have ceased forever into eternity. I do not think that it is outside the realm of possibilities, certainly not outside the Holy Spirit's power to mightily manifest himself in that same way today. I just don't believe that it is the normal mode of operations. But this raises an interesting question. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that these sign gifts are normative, that we should expect to see them in our day. Well, through our survey of the text, we've established that the Holy Spirit's primary work is to point us to God's Word as well as to the Son of God, who is the Word incarnate. So perhaps the reason we don't see these same manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our day is because we are not immersed in the Scriptures nor making our lives about the proclamation of Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit works to illuminate the Word of God. How can He illuminate that which we are not reading? And then He powerfully works to validate the gospel message of Christ. How can He powerfully work to validate a gospel message we are not proclaiming? But regardless, right, regardless of whether these sign gifts are available to us today or not, I think if we focus on the sign gifts and we don't focus on the why behind the sign gifts, then we miss the point. As I was talking with Pastor Josh during my preparation for this Sunday, he pointed out that if we read this text and we get more excited about speaking in tongues than about salvation, then we missed it. The Holy Spirit did not cause these early believers to manifest these sign gifts simply for the fun of it. Rather, it was always for the purpose of saving those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It was always about bringing the salvation of God's people. So rather than chasing a sign gift that may or may not be available for us today, maybe we should be devoting ourselves to the study of God's word and to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, perhaps then we would see the power of the Holy Spirit 
and causing sinners to turn from their sin and turn towards Christ in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, you kept your promise to send the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for demonstrating beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are ruling and reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth. Because of that reality, 2,000 years after these events at Pentecost, your people here this morning have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. I pray that we would look to your word and meditate on it day and night and that we would spend our lives making much of Christ. And for those here who may not know you, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and cause them to be born again. And we pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.